choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Can I feel out? Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode 307 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 14, Climb to Orbit, and Translunar Injection. 30 seconds and counting. Stu Russo just said, thanks, it's been a good count. 25 seconds and counting, we are still go. 20 seconds, guidance alert, the guidance system now going internal. 15, 14, 13, 12, 11, 10, 9, 8, ignition sequence start, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 0, launch commit, liftoff, we have liftoff with Apollo 14, 3 minutes past the hour, the tower is clear, Houston is controlling. On January 31, 1971, at 4.05 p.m., 10 years after Shepard had become the first American in space, the candle was lit on the massive first stage of the Saturn V rocket. It started with a fearsome, deafening bellow accompanied by billowing flames and smoke. The approaching dusk and the damp mistiness left by the now-departed rainstorm only enhanced the spectacular sight and the sound of the launch. Tentacles of flame erupted on either side of the bottom of the Saturn V, which seemed to sit in its own cauldron of fire momentarily before breaking free of its shackles. As four hold-down arms at the base of the launch pad and five access arms along the outside of the booster swung away. Over seven and a half million pounds of thrust lifted the raging mechanical monster, which weighed over 6.6 million pounds in a slow but determined rise. Stu Russo would later eloquently recall that the launch was like a birth, alluding to the countdown as slowly breathing life into the Saturn V, and noting that once the hold-down arms were released, the rocket was alive with a mind of its own. Joan Rusa had instructed the children to shout out Godspeed when the Saturn V lifted off, and the four youngsters complied, yelling the blessing at the top of their lungs. A few seconds later, attendees in the VIP area could feel the heat of the flames, hear the deafening roaring noise, and feel the ground shake. The initial reactions of the Apollo 14 crew within the first seconds after liftoff reflected almost boyish exuberance. Beautiful, cried Rusa at the nine-second mark. 
with Shepard making the same exclamation seven seconds later. She's going, she's going, Mitchell remarked. Everything is good. The five Rocketdyne F-1 engines in the first stage were performing well. 25 seconds. Okay, Houston, roll complete. Roger, roll complete. Shepard reports roll program completed. Pitch profile still in progress. 37 seconds. Stand by for mode one Bravo. Mark, one Bravo now. Okay, we're one Bravo. At T plus 42 seconds, the rocket was high enough that the abort mode was switched from the initial mode 1A, low altitude abort, to the mode 1B, medium altitude abort. Capcom Gordon Fullerton making that report. Mark, one minute. Cabin pressure coming down, adjusting from sea level to a space environment. Status check and mission control are coming up all greens on the flight director's console. In Houston, everything looks good here on the ground. At T plus 56 seconds, the cabin pressure was allowed to fall from its sea level value of 14.7 PSI to the flight value of 5 PSI. But the nitrogen-oxygen mixture was being replaced by pure oxygen. The crew had been breathing pure oxygen since before they headed to the pad to avoid any possibility of nitrogen gas forming bubbles in their bloodstream as the pressure dropped. One minute, 19 seconds coming up on period of maximum aerodynamic pressure on the vehicle. The aerodynamic forces acting on the launch vehicle rose as it gained speed. However, the air around it was thinning rapidly with its increasing altitude. The interaction of those two changing values resulted in a maximum dynamic pressure on the vehicle's skin at T plus 1 minute 21 seconds at a speed of Mach 1.6 and an altitude of 12.3 kilometers. This was the moment of max Q. 1 minute uh, 35 seconds, uh, 9 nautical miles in altitude, 5 nautical miles downrange, uh, velocity now reading uh, 3340 uh, feet per second. Pass through Max Q. Mode 1 Charlie. Mark, 1 Charlie now. We're 1 Charlie, EDS auto is off. Roger. At T plus 2 minutes, the abort mode was changed to 1C which was the high-altitude launch escape tower abort. Two minutes, five seconds, uh, coming up on uh, center engine shutdown. Two minutes, 12 seconds, 20 nautical miles in altitude. Inboard, cut off. Roger, inboard. Center engine shutdown on time. Two minutes, 25 seconds, 25 nautical miles in altitude, 30 nautical miles downrange. Mark, two minutes, 35 seconds, uh, coming up uh, on staging. Flawlessly, the Saturn V screamed into the upper atmosphere as blinding flames more than twice as long as the rocket itself blasted behind. By now, the acceleration was already up to about 3.6 Gs and starting to build rapidly. Having already burned about 4 million pounds of propellant, the launch vehicle now only weighed about 2.5 million pounds, less than 40% of its liftoff mass. 
Also, the F-1 engines were now running in very rarefied air, allowing them to produce a total of 39,600 kilonewtons of thrust, 17% more than at sea level. In order to reduce this acceleration buildup and the resulting structural loads, the center engine of the S-1C was shut down 29 seconds before the rest of the engines. Another effect of the reduced air pressure on the first stage was visible on movie coverage of the launch as the base of the vehicle appeared to be progressively consumed by fire. Near the ground, the plume was constrained by air pressure into a narrow flame extending rearwards. With decreasing air pressure, the hot gases were able to expand into an ever-widening plume. Toward the end of the S-1C's flight, the air was so thin and the slipstream so negligible that a small amount of exhaust was able to expand forwards up the side of the rocket structure, giving the appearance on TV coverage of the rocket's base being consumed by the plume. Walter Cronkite called it frightening. Frightening explosion when that thing separates. You think the whole thing's gone. Should see it from the inside. <laughs> you can see it really. Probably the most memorable incident of the launch phase happened when the S1C shut down two minutes and 45 seconds into flight at an altitude of approximately 42 miles. The moon rocket speed was now over 6,000 miles per hour. And separation. Roger. Ignition on five. Roger. Had staging. Uh, the Shepard crew now riding on five good second stage engines. On five engines. Roger. We confirm good thrust on all five. The uh, giant first stage falling away now. It's day's work done. When the staging episode occurred, Rusa hadn't necessarily expected the violent behavior of the rocket, noting that it was the opposite of what happened when a jet airplane pulled G's. In an aircraft, any increase in G-forces could be detected as they began and could be dealt with as the G's increased and decreased. In the command module, however, the four and a half G's abruptly subsided and the astronauts had a moment of relief before the second stage rockets cut in, jerking them like helpless marionettes yet again. Ed Mitchell recalled years later that, quote, The first stage cutoff was the worst. What people don't realize is that you had 363 feet of spacecraft that felt like it was compressed, like a spring. It's called aeroelasticity, and when a stage cuts off, you feel like you're being thrown forward because the acceleration has suddenly stopped. Then that compressed spring unwinds and sends you back a bit. Then the second stage kicks in and throws you back hard. We actually call that phase the train wreck. End quote. Now the five engines of the S-2 pulled the remaining active stages away from the hollow S-1C stage. Three minutes, ten seconds, coming up on skirt step and tower jettison. Skirt step. Roger. There goes the tower. Roger, we confirm the skirt. 
The launch escape tower has ejected on time. Steam press, water auto. Roger, Ed. Three minutes, 35 seconds, uh, 14 now, 33 feet shorter, 9,000 pounds lighter, uh, moving out well beyond the Earth's atmosphere. We show an altitude of uh, 60 nautical miles. At the 3 minute and 20 second mark, the launch escape tower roared away on schedule, taking the boost protective cover with it. Mark uh, 3 minutes 55 seconds, 63 nautical miles in altitude, 143 nautical miles downrange, velocity now. Send that 4 minutes, trajectory and guidance look good. 14, roger. Until now, the instrument unit was following a predetermined trajectory to minimize lateral aerodynamic loads without using any information about the current position or velocity. This is called open loop control, since the results of the last guidance command are not being fed back to help compute future commands. Now the instrument unit began using iterative guidance mode, which closes the guidance loop by using the difference between where it is and where it wants to be to correct its guidance commands. Open loop guidance can put a spacecraft into orbit, but closed loop guidance has a much better chance of placing it into exactly the desired orbit. Uh, 14 Houston, the CMC is go. Although the instrument unit's launch vehicle digital computer controlled the Saturn V during the launch, the command module computer monitored the ascent and displayed the flight path and attitude information on the DISCI and the flight director attitude indicator. If significant and increasing deviations between the current and expected parameters arose, the astronauts had the ability to take over the launch vehicle and manually fly it into orbit using the same hand controllers that they would later use to fly the command and service module. The astronauts spent a fair amount of time practicing this, not only because it was an important capability, but also because as test pilots they relished the thought that they might get to fly the mighty rocket into orbit instead of just riding on it. Four minutes, uh, 20 seconds, velocity now reading at uh, 10,750 feet per second and accelerating. In uh, mission control, Apollo 14's trajectory data, driving right down the middle of our plot boards. Uh, right now, flight path data is go. Coming up on five minutes, uh, 78 nautical miles in altitude, uh, 235 nautical miles downrange. Retro fire officer reports uh, they're... 14 is clear of the uh, Atlantic uh, weather. The retro fire officer computes the re-entry into Earth's atmosphere at the end of the mission, but also continuously computes abort maneuvers, which would quickly return the astronauts to Earth if necessary throughout every stage of the mission. Retro is now saying that if they had to abort, they would land past an area of bad weather in the Atlantic. Roger, and your times are nominal. Level sense arm 8 plus 3, niner, and S2 cutoff at niner plus 1, 6. And nominal, here comes. Capcom Gordon Fullerton reporting that 14 capable of reaching a minimum orbit uh, with a combination of a good third stage and service module engines. Meanwhile, in mission control, a status check being taken, coming up all greens. Gimbal motors are running. Uh, Roger, 14, gimbal motors on. 
Six minutes, 30 seconds, 93 nautical miles in altitude, 420 nautical miles downrange. Stand by for S4P to orbit. Mark, you have S4B to orbit now. Right, S4B orbit. Shepard, uh, Russo, Mitchell now told that they can reach orbit uh, on booster power only if given a good third stage. Seven minutes, uh, 30 seconds, uh, 14 uh, flying almost uh, parallel over the ocean now with Shepard, uh, with the Shepard crew in a heads down position. Really moving out now for downrange distance. Uh, we show downrange of 587 nautical miles. Inboard cut off. Roger, inboard. That was a center engine shutdown right on time. Good thrust on the other four. As with the first stage, the center or inboard engine of the S2 is cut off early, in this case to minimize the vehicle's pogo oscillation tendencies late in the burn. Mark 9 minutes, so 100 nautical miles in altitude, 830 nautical miles downrange. Roger, cut off. And staging. Roger. And good thrust on one. Roger. Nine minutes, uh, 30 seconds. Thrust looks good on the S-4B after staging. Looks good on the S-4B. Thank you. The uh, Shepard crew has now used up two-thirds of their Saturn stages on their way to orbit. Shepard announced the S-2 cutoff at the 9 minute 20 second mark, and the S-4B stage immediately took over. Following the drop-off of the S-2, the astronauts were fascinated by the plethora of ice falling away. Look at the flakes go, said Mitchell. Look at all the ice up there, said Russo. A jillion stars, said Mitchell. 14 Houston, everything's looking perfect here. Roger. 14 Houston, predicted cutoff is uh, as planned, 1-1 plus 4-3. Predicted uh, time of shutdown, 11 minutes, uh, 43 seconds. Downrange distance now 1,322 nautical miles. 11 minutes, uh, 30 seconds. Standing by now for shutdown. You made a good cutoff. Roger. The first burn of the S-4B stage was 4.1 seconds shorter than was predicted. This was mostly due to overperformance of the S-4B. For 60 seconds during this burn, the engine refilled the spherical start tank with a mixture of gaseous and liquid hydrogen. This would be used to re-spin the turbines when the engine was restarted for the boost out of Earth orbit. Shut down. Uh, we'll stand by uh, now for preliminary orbital readings, uh, both on board and uh, from the ground. Apollo 14, Houston, the booster is safe, and your orbit is go. Roger. Good show. Go orbit, booster safe. 14 Houston, I have a Z-torquing angle when you're ready to copy. Okay, we're showing about 99 by 102.9er. This is Apollo Control Houston, uh, now at uh, 22 minutes into the flight of Apollo 14. We're uh, less than two minutes away now from uh, loss of signal uh, with uh, Canary. Apollo 14 presently in a a circular orbit of uh, 102 nautical miles. With the crew now in orbit, they would experience a prolonged weightlessness for the first time in the mission after a ride that had subjected them to loads of almost 4G. 
Shepard was surprised at how much gentler the 18,000-mile-an-hour ascent was than his 5,000-mile-an-hour Freedom 7 launch had been. Compared to the brief taste of weightlessness Freedom 7 had offered, floating free inside the more spacious Apollo command module was a thrilling moment. Shepard said, quote, Very smooth and strangely quiet. End quote. Later, he said that the weightlessness experience was alone worth the trip. The crew began checking out equipment, and Rusa assumed the role of navigator. He worked meticulously with a sextant, a monocular, a telescope, and other instruments aligning the guidance system of the spacecraft for the upcoming second burn of the S-4B's J-2 engine for translunar injection. Rusa would ultimately appreciate the fact that he could maneuver himself a lot easier in zero-g to perform his navigation task than he had been able to in the earthbound simulator. After an uneventful orbit and one-half around the Earth, it was time to relight the S-4B stage for the translunar injection burn. Less than 30 seconds away now from time of ignition. Uh, our displays show a predicted uh, apogee uh, resulting uh, from this burn of uh, 250,263.7 nautical miles. We're at uh, 2 hours uh, 28 minutes now into the flight. Standing by. We have ignition. Roger, ignition. Smooth start. Steering's good. Roger, and we show good thrust on the S-4B. That's Al Shepard, uh, spacecraft commander, giving that report. Booster says we look good. Uh, one minute, uh, three seconds into the burn. We show velocity buildup uh, on one of our displays, uh, presently reading uh, 27,390 feet per second. Houston tank pressures are steady at 4-0 and 3-0. 14. Houston, roger. Al Shepard again uh, from aboard the spacecraft. Still receiving data showing uh, the velocity of uh, 29,212 feet per second. Coming up now in four minutes. Four minutes. Apollo 14 uh, tracking right down the middle of our plot boards in mission control. There's the cutoff. Roger, 14. Cutoff. That was Al Shepard uh, reporting shutdown. It looks like... Down, the uh, coming down through 35 now. The uh, coming down through 30. Apollo 14, roger, on the fence. Apollo Control Houston, that uh, shutdown time appeared to be uh, right on time. With that report, uh, Flight Dynamics Officer uh, Dave Reed says it uh, looks like a good burn. Uh, we're at 2 hours uh, 37 minutes uh, now into the flight. Uh, we'll stand by and continue to monitor. The translunar injection maneuver occurred at T plus 2 hours 28 minutes, and the second burn of the S-4B broke Apollo 14 free of Earth's gravity. Just short of 6 minutes later, the S-4B, having done its job, shut down. Apollo 14 was now headed for the moon.
Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode number 307 of the Space Rocket History Podcast entitled Apollo 14, Climb to Orbit, and Translunar Injection. Hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a pleasure to bring it to you. If you're looking for old episodes of the podcast, the first 135 are available on the Archive Podcast. Search for Space Rocket History Archive. It should be available on all podcatchers. My sources for this week's episode were Light This Candle by Neil Thompson, Smoke Jumper Moon Pilot by Willie Mosley, Failure Is Not an Option by Gene Krantz, A Man on the Moon by Andrew Chaikin, The Internet Archive, CBS News, The Apollo 14 Flight Journal, and Wikipedia. Well, we are on the way to the moon, and I am delighted. So far, everything is going just about perfectly, right down the middle. Nothing could possibly go wrong now. Certainly nothing that would jeopardize the mission, right? Find out next week when I cover the Lunar Module docking. In this episode, I spoke about the instrument unit. If you don't know what that is, I have an episode. It's number 240. It's titled Apollo 12 Saturn V Instrument Unit. If you listen to that, that may clear things up as to what the instrument unit does. I have a little bonus content now. I couldn't fit this in last week, but I did want to share it with you. This is from Smoke Jumper Moon Pilot, and it says, quote, one tradition of manned space flights was for the pad team leader, Gunter Vent, to be presented with a going-away gift just prior to boarding. Shepard presented Vent, who had been a German Luftwaffe pilot in World War II and was nicknamed the Pad Führer with a German Army helmet emblazoned with Colonel Gunter Klink, a reference to the bumbling commandant of a German prison camp in the television comedy Hogan's Heroes. Vent reciprocated by giving Shepard, age 47, a walking cane labeled Lunar Explorer Support Equipment. End quote. I thought that was pretty funny. I can remember watching that show back in the late 1960s. I think it came on on Saturday night. Do you remember that show? It had uh, Colonel Klink and Schultz with his I Know Nothing speech that he would give just about every episode. (laughs) I think you might can still catch it in reruns. Okay, mark your calendar for July 18th, 19th, and 20th. We will relive the landing of Apollo 11 in three consecutive days. On July 18th, I will post episode 219, Apollo 11 Lunar Landing Part 1. On the 19th, I will post Lunar Landing Part 2. And on July 20th, the 50th anniversary, I will post Lunar Landing Part 3. If you are subscribed to the podcast, it will appear in your feed automatically. So if you're not subscribed, go ahead and get subscribed now. On a personal note, Mrs. SRH and I will celebrate our 38th wedding anniversary on July 4th. 
Yes, we got married on July 4, 1981, a little over 10 years after the Apollo 14 mission and 20 years after Alan Shepard became the first American in space. Did we plan it that way? Hmm. <laughs> okay, the pictures for this episode are available on the website, spacerockethistory.com. Hope you check that out. For those of you who are enjoying the content provided here, you may have noticed that we don't have any commercials or ad revenue. We are entirely listener-supported. Please consider supporting the podcast if you are financially able. To support the podcast, go to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, click on the orange Donate button to make a one-time donation, or the Patreon link to make small monthly donations. Oh, and by the way, a few contributors have figured out how to make monthly contributions on PayPal. So if that's what you want to do, that's fine too. All donors are rewarded in four ways. Donors' names are added on the donors page at the level they choose to donate. There are longevity emojis for multiple years of contributions, and that is explained better on the donors page. All donors receive a thank you message, and all donors are recognized on the podcast, and all donors are automatically entered in the weekly giveaway. We were pleased to receive four contributions to support the podcast over the past week. Tim E. from Queensland, Australia donated at the Mercury level. Peter C. from Queensland, Australia donated at the Gemini level and earned a satellite emoji. Stefan F. from Germany donated at the Apollo level. Darren S. pledged on Patreon at the Mercury level. Thank you for supporting the Space Rocket History Podcast. We are now at 228 Patreon donors. We lost five over the change in month from June to July. Hopefully some of those will be back next week. Our goal is to reach 300 for 2019. Our total donors for 2019 have reached 366 with a goal of reaching 600 in 2019. For the 366 of you who have already donated for 2019, I certainly appreciate it. Here's my bride of 38 years with the weekly drawing. Thanks, Mike. Hello, everyone. I am happy to announce the winner of the SRH Logo Magnet. With the help of Google's random number generator, I selected Paul Stanton. Paul Stanton, if you would email us, mike at spacerockethistory.com, and tell us your address, we will mail this out to you. Thank you to all 366 of you who have contributed thus far in 2019. Okay, folks, that's all we have for this week. Hope you get the chance to see the rocket's red glare on July 4th. Happy Independence Day. I'll try to have episode 308 posted by next Thursday. So long for now.